Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another edition of The Christian Contrarian. I'm Gary Wayne, author of the Genesis 6 Conspiracy. This is episode 41, The War of Giants, part one, The Kings of Shinar. And so today's episode and the next episode is going to focus on chapter 14 of Genesis, which I think is a very often overlooked and very important passage and set of events and information that is so key to understand the early post-Diluvian period and the beast kingdoms that are going to extend out of the kings of Shinar in terms of Assyria, in the terms of Babylon, in the terms of Persia. So we've got, you know, several in there that are part of the seven empires that we need to understand in prophecy. So it's important to understand how this is coming about in the early post-Diluvian epoch. And in Genesis 14, Abraham has already moved from the city of Ur that we're going to mention a few times today in conjunctions with the kings of Shinar. And after escaping those kings is settling in the land of Canaan with several peoples that have squatted the covenant land that we're going to talk about in part two. And what's interesting about the land of Ur that Abraham came from is that this is the land of Nimrod. This is the land of Shinar that Nimrod stays in and founds or renovates many cities, uh, including uh, Erech. And Erech is the city that is transliterated into Hebrew as Uruk. And what's interesting about that is there's a good case that giants were at the time of Babel when Nimrod was king and before the disbursement of the people. And that's where he gained his reputation from, from fighting with giants. And in fact, if you look up in the Septuagint in the Nimrod version, it actually says he, he was fighting against the giants. So an interesting translation there that we don't get out of the Masoretic text. And what's also interesting about the city of Ur in Uruk is that you have a King Shulgi that is uh, ruling from the city of Ur and his brother is Gilgamesh of Uruk just as you have these hero epics of the kings of Uruk that is very famous in Sumerian mythology and of course Gilgamesh was you know, 11 cubits tall, so 16 to 19 feet, depending on how you're measuring that cubit. And he was four cubits wide, so six to seven feet wide. So these are the giants that Nimrod is fighting with and probably the reason he built Babel City. And of course, Nimrod is the one who's going to also intermarry into these dynasties after Babel in Shinar that are going to again align with the beast kingdoms coming out of the Mesopotamia region. And so Shulgi um, is king at, of the Ur III dynasty around 2100 to 2030 BC. And Gilgamesh is fifth after Atnapishtim. So certainly 
this is putting a time frame that is just after Nimrod third generation, often equated with Enmer Akar out of Sumeria for a lot of reasons, which we won't go into today, but it's an in interesting parallel account of, of Nimrod, I think, in the Sumerian mythology. And so Genesis 14 is going to take place circa 1980 to 1950 BC. So you know, again, a couple generations there, but there's a patronymic pattern that sort of happens with the kings that we're going to be touching on today. But I just want to sort of line up the history from a biblical chronology uh, so that people have an understanding of what's going on. Because if you're looking at a secular chronology uh, of the years, they're basically going to put uh, Gilgamesh ruling at about 25 to 2600 BC. But from a biblical chronology, you understand how that's going to match up and that's going to have a significant overlap into our understanding of who are the kings of Mesopotamia that are coming in to war with uh, the various peoples occupying the covenant land. So having put that all on the table then, let's look at the first king. And this is King Amraphel. And I find that you find a lot within a name, but we understand he's the king of Shinar. But historians actually will, will place him at Ur as part of the Ur the Third dynasty. And so the city of Ur that Shulgi is, brother of Gilgamesh and of Uruk, you can start to see where some of these relationships are starting to show a bloodline of giants as kings, you know, within the third generation after the flood of the time of Nimrod and fully entrenched and more powerful as we get into the times of Genesis 14. And so Amarfel is the Hebrew word from 569, meaning the sayer of darkness. And he's the son of Shulgi as we understand the king's list coming down from Sumeria. And Amraphel has basically a compound word. So we need to understand how that word breaks down. And the first part is A-M. And A-M means people, 5971 in Hebrew. So it's describing a people within the patronymic name. And Amraphel has a root back coming, according to the Strong's Concordance, back to Amar, 559, which means proud, boastful, uh, arrogant speaker. And again, a description of a Rephaim or a Nephilim who were, were said to be very proud, very hubris, and because of their strength and their demigod status. And... Amar is the root for Amorite and or Amori, number 567. So you have a series of words and the Amorites are a people in the land of the covenant and on east of the Jordan. And as we're going to learn, a people in Mesopotamia as well. Very, very important people in Mesopotamia. So we're going to come back to that in, in a couple of minutes. The middle word uh, is Raph. And Raph 
goes back to the Hebrew word Rapha and Raphaim plural. And noting that the Raphaim are the people also mentioned in Genesis 14 that are some of the people that the kings are fighting against. And that the word Raphaim it also connects you to King Og and King Sihon of the Mount Hermon region, who are the last of the giants, with the giants being that word Rapha. And so Rapha can mean three different uh, words. It's rooted in a meaning called healer that a lot of people go to first. Um, and I think that's that meaning is deriving from the Raphaim because you had to kill them by taking their head. So I think there was a self-healing quality that they had that if you didn't you know, take their head off that, they wouldn't remain dead. They had some sort of immune system. And I think that's sort of the root where it is. But it also can be used for healer and physician as well within the Bible. So you have to look at the context where they're using the separate root word of 774.95 for healer or physician. And it can also mean a ghost or a shay, a spirit. But typically we understand it as for a tribe of giants, just as it's used for giant, I think 25 times in, in, in the Old Testament. And so now we have another key piece to the name. And then the last part is L, 410, which is a singular form of Elohim um, for God Almighty, capitalized, and for multiple gods or as in plural, for many gods, let's say, like the Baalim that ruled from, from Mount Hermon. And so we have a connection here to gods and or El can mean mighty or strong and mighty one. So again, you have to understand the application that you're going to put this in. But if we put this together, we get a name of coming from Amarfel that means something like a giant people of God or a giant people uh, that were mighty ones of a god. I mean, it all depends on how you want to put those meanings together. And this was proud speaking people. So I think there's a definite connection within the name that identifies that this is a bloodline of Raphaim kings in the time of Genesis 14 that were in charge of the Ur the Third dynasty, which is also kind of important to understand the context, and that that dynasty was quite powerful, and that it's marked by the days of Amraphel because he's of the Ur the Third dynasty, as opposed to Ketelamar, who we're going to talk about in a couple of minutes. So I just wanted to um, put that in perspective because it starts to make sense of what's going on here, I think. And so when we look at the Amorites as how there might be connected in there is that the Amorites are also known in Egypt as Amar, A-M-A-R of that time. They were also known in Sumeria as the Amaru, A-M-U-R-R-U as it's transliterated into um, English. And that they were called the Amaru people, but they also worshiped an Amaru god. And this Amaru god is actually mentioned in the Ugaritic text. So he's part of the Baalim that is mentioned. A lot of people, historians will say that Amaru is the same as the god Adad and Hadad, which is the same god as Baal. But the Ugaritic text 
actually have a separate name for this God as part of the Baalim. And that's important to understand because the Amorites are a patriarchalist nation in Genesis 10. And only the patriarchalist nations of the Canaanite tribes, the nine, as opposed to Canaan, Sidon, and Heth, who have patriarchal names as the sons of Canaan, these other ones do not have names, including the Amorites. And that's because Raphaim are not listed as patriarchs in the table of nations in Genesis 10 or First Chronicles, just as Arba, the father of Anak, is not listed in the table of nations, just as Rapha for Raphaim, which is likely a name of a uh, patriarchal uh, uh, giant named Rapha or something similar to that, who uh, are responsible for the Raphaim that are described in Genesis 14 as a separate people from the Amorites and other people of, of the covenant land. And so once we start to understand this and we understand that Og and, Ke and Sihon were the last of the Raphaim, certainly Og was, and uh, there's a lot of people who believe that Sihon was his brother. If not, he's certainly connected and part of that empire of, of Mount Hermon that Moses and Joshua destroyed in the time of the Exodus. And so we get from this that Amaru is the god and Amar, Amor is the root for the Amari or the Amorites which are the hybrid humans that intermarry with the sons of Canaan or the daughters of Canaan, Sidon and Heth um, to form all of these patriarch nations. So Amar might be and likely is, I think is the patriarchal giant's name probably produced from Amaru God with another human female after the flood, perhaps before the flood, but in my sort of understanding of the Bible, it would be a post-Diluvian recreation. And that Amar would be the patriarch for the Amorites, which now starts to make sense from a patriarchal bloodline that you're going to have kings that are going to descend through the bloodlines and into the, the later generations. So we get in, and where I'm going with that is if you look at the incredible famous code of Hammurabi, who ruled 1792 to 1750 in that range, that's a few more generations down from the time of Amraphel, but it's got a lot of connections to Amraphel. So Typically that H is going to be silent, but typically also in the spellings we're going to get Hamar, Abi. But it also you'll get variations of that as being spelled with a P. So Hamar, Rapi, as in the Rapium or the Raphaim, that's out of the Ugaritic text, where Amaru is also connected in. And when you look at Later kings out of the Ugaritic text, in, in fact, in somewhere between 1250 and 1180 BC, we get an Amurapi that's actually spelled M-U-R-A-P-I as a patronymic king. So Hammurabi is part of that patronymic kings that are ruling Amorites and Amorite-run empires throughout history at least up until, you know, let's say a thousand BC.
And what's interesting is Hammurabi's kingdom is recognized as an Amorite kingship. So the Amorites get so powerful that they actually are controlling a Mesopotamian kingship of Babylon. And again, most people don't make those kind of connections, but it's important to understand what's going on in the times of Abraham moving into Genesis 14, A, from where he moved from, and then B, to the people he has moved in, and then his involvement in this war of giants. So it's really rich in the details once you start to dig into it. But if it was just Amraphel as, as being connected to giants, then you would say, well, okay, fine, but we don't really have much to tell us about the giants out of Mesopotamia. But we actually do, and it's in the details again. And so Arioch is the next king I'm going to talk about. And this one's really interesting and some very good connections for people that they might enjoy. And he's the king of Elisar. And Arioch is Hebrew 746. And you're not going to not believe this, but if you look it up, it actually says and it has a meaning of lion-like. Just as you have these Nephilim or Raphaim kind of beings after the flood that's that is recorded biblically in 2 Samuel 23 and 1 Chronicles 11 as a couple of examples of the lion-like men of Moab. And you couldn't get a more obvious connection to these warrior-like Nephilim Creatures, and now we have a king of Elisar with that name Arioch. And what's interesting about that is we also have, you know, the lion-like men of, or the lion-faced men of Gad. And here's where that kind of intersects. So lion-like, as you take that out of the lion-like men of Moab, comes from Ariel. That's number 739, and Arioch was 746. So it's related in the group of the words. And 739 Ariel has a root of number 738, which is Ari. And it is also that word that is being used for lion faces uh, in the lion men or the lion faced people of Gad. And what's also interesting is you have 740, which is part of this group of words, which is Ariel, which means Lion of God, which is thought to be, in a lot of occult beliefs, to be an angel, one of the fallen angels that would have been a lion-like God who produced lion-like offspring. And what's also interesting about the A-R-I of Ariel, or... Arioch or uh, Ariel is that that is the root word for the Aryans and the Aryans that became the Persians and so you're going to get some versions of those names that I'm not going to go into today that are part of the Bible in the time of the Persian Empire and again understand that patronymic in terms of names coming down things start to make a little bit more sense. And in 2 Kings 17.30, we actually get a god named Nergal. And Nergal is the god of Cuth. And it was a popular god 
in the Ur the Third dynasty. So at the time of Arioch, at the time of Amraphel. And this Nergalgod is associated with these warrior-like Nephilim beings called the Irma Hulu or the Ulalulu. I think I got that wrong, Ulalu, which were ruthless warriors of Nergal. And that's who I think Arioch comes from, from that kind of bloodline based on, on, on the names. So it's very important to understand these concepts as we understand these kings, and those are the first two. So let's move now on to King Tidal. And King Tidal derives from the <clears throat> Hebrew word 1763, Tishal, meaning terrible, fear, or make afraid, just as people were terrified by the Raphaim. They were called the terrible ones in Ezekiel 32 and in Isaiah 14 and other Isaiah 25. These are the terrible ones who reaped terror on the earth. These are the ones who were slain that are in the prisons along the sides of the abyss for creating that terror on the earth. These are the Raphaim kings that Pharaoh is talking to, as uh, communicating with, at least in a prophetic allegorical sense, whether or not that's real or not, I'll leave that up to you, but they're communicating from the abyss with the Pharaoh, who's also part of the beast bloodlines and part of the seven empires, at least the original Egyptian empire. And so Tidal is king of nations, which is an odd term, king of nations. So he's an important king. We're just not really told biblically where he comes from. But what's interesting is that they're thought to be the Hurrians. And the Hurrians are thought to be the Horim of the, uh, that we'll talk about in, in, in the next uh, chapter on this. And that they, the, the Hurrians intermixed with the Marianu and the Aryans to form the Mitanni dynasty and the Hittite dynasty, which has a connection into the Hittites in terms of how they become giant-like and the intermarriages going on there. And when we look at Tidal in terms of not the root word that we talked about in 1763, but 884.13 Tidal, as we get that out of Strong's, that means great son and chief of nations. And a great son is a hero, god, demigod son, and Raphaim is typically how that it would be understood. And what's also interesting is that in this, the Greek um transliteration of Tidal, and I think you can see that in the Septuagint as well, um, is Targal. And Gal at the end it means in Sumerian, big, mighty, and great, and hero-like. And typically a name that was applied to the king heroes of Uruk in, in surrounding cities. And the name for king in Sumerian was Lugal because there were giant men. Just as Shulgi um, probably has a variation of that Gal in, 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 of Gal in his name. So interesting that all of these names sort of, you know, cross kind of paths as, as they come down through the etymo etymological uh, ladders through history. And what's also interesting is that there was a king 
amongst the Anakim in the Promised Land called Talmai, along with Sheshai and uh, Ahiman. And Talmai is a Hurrian or a Horim word. And Talmai uh, in Hurrian uh, is, the, is, is the word Telma, which is, means giant, which now you have a crossover with the Anakim kings with using some of the names and the meanings, meaning that they're all sort of interconnected and it, it all makes sense when you start to piece together all of these nations. And so this is King Tidal, king of the Hurrian nations that's associated with the Aryans that will eventually produce the Persian kings uh, of the beast empires I talked about in Daniel. So understanding these roots is just extraordinarily important. Hoping I didn't disconnect my mic here. Nope, I didn't. Sorry about that. And so we're going to move now on to the last king because I'm, I'm um, running a little bit short of time for the show here. So to keep it moving, let's talk about Kettle Aramar. And he, in, he was known as the Ravager of the West. And he's the king of Elam. And everybody thinks he's leading this war of giants. But he's actually, in history, known as a vassal king of the Ur the Third Empire, who is their tax collector. So when, in Genesis 14, the Canaanite kings of Sodom and Gomorrah and region refused to pay the tribute, that's when... Ketelamar goes to Amarfel of the Ur the Third Dynasty and says, hey, look, they're not paying this, uh, this tribute, so they're going to go in and punish the Sodomites in the war of four kings against five, as some side called, but the war of giants, because there's giants on both sides, and, and that's kind of the point of what we're talking about here. It's, it's a, it was a Rephaim or a Nephilim world order very early on. And so he's the king of Elam, Ketelamar. And Leomar, Legomar, in several different translations, is the god of Elam. And Elam is one of those Raphaim kings that is being talked about in Ezekiel 32, who's in, in the abyss, along with some other interesting names, if you want to read through that chapter. But Leomar, Legomar, is the Elamite god. And so when we're understanding who these kings are, understand that the opening verse l describes it in the time of Amraphel because it was of the Ur the Third Dynasty, which gives you the dates that you need to have. And now this fits in where Ketelamar actually fits in, in terms of the order. So he's a king and he is, uh, and, and Kedor actually means king uh, as you break that name down. And so he's the king for the god of Elam, Legomar. So it's indicating again that typically the kings are the offspring of the gods. And we're looking for possibly a people and names that are going to be associated with Ketelamar if we were wanting to trace his lineage back into what god. But certainly Legomeramar was the god of Elam, so one would think he would be from there. But what's also interesting is that in Genesis 15, which just follows the Genesis 14 war, and this is the time when Abraham is going to be promised the land from the Nile to the Euphrates, and where the these giant kings were talked about that we're talking about today of Shinar, you get the people called the Cadmonites. And that's the Cadmonites. And it's defined as 
Easterners. And it's rooted in 6924 Kedam, which means East, and ancient Eastern Aboriginals. So that can mean before the flood, or it can mean right from the flood, but older and the first ones there. And so when we think about Noah and all of the tribes coming down of the Noahites from the mountain and settling in Shinar, the giants would have been there by this sort of translation as the, the ancient Eastern Aboriginals, the Kadem, that are somehow connected to the Kadmoni, the Kadmonites, who are not in the Table of Nations either and are likely Raphaim or some kind of offspring of the gods and human females. Similar to Arioch as an example when I say something like that. So we get some a term called the people of the East in Genesis 29.1. But where we really sort of close in on it is in Judges 6 and Judges 7 and 8 with the people that are aligned with the Amalekites Malachites who are and the Midianites who are warring with the Israelites and understanding the Amalekites are hybrids as well as I cover off in, the, in my book and there's also a race of Amalekim that's covered off in Genesis 14. And when we look at how what they're called, they're called the children of the east or the Ben Kadam from which the Kadmonites come from. And understand that the area that is being promised to Abraham goes to the Euphrates the, from the people of the east and I would say the giants of the east. And so everything that we look at in Genesis 14 and Genesis 15 in terms of peoples and there are other peoples in Genesis 15 we don't have time to cover today that are amongst the mighty seven and including the Raphaim and the Perizim and the Kenizzites and the Kenites. And we've got a number of nations not on the table of nations that people need to explore and learn more about. But for today, understand that the kings that Nimrod married into that produced the Mesopotamian beast empires were Raphaim or some kind of offspring of fallen angels and, and human females. And if you want some more information on this, you can get a hold of me through my website at thegenesis6conspiracy.com and I've got the two-part series that I'm going to be presenting uh, on a document that I can send you. So get a hold of me through my website, thegenesis6conspiracy.com. And until next time, may God bless you all abundantly and hopefully we've raised a little bit of curiosity with you today. Thank you until next time.